This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Ron Thompson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. I'm very happy to be here. It's uh, taken us a while to get here, hasn't it? <laughs> That's why we do the things we do. And I've been doing this, you may not know this, for 63 years. So I'm not a Johnny-come-lately. I've This has been my whole life. It is not just a career. It's been my life. And uh, everything that I talk about, I've lived through. Uh, Ron, for those who don't know you, what, what is your background? My background is that when I was uh, with National Parks, my background started in 1959 when at age 20 I joined the uh, what was then the Federal Department of National Parks and, uh, and I left them in 83 after Mr. Mugabe took over. He, uh, he wanted a black man. In, I was then in charge of Wanky National Park, which is the premier national park in, in, in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. And he felt that it wasn't right to have a white man in charge of, of, of the country's premier national park. So he, he threw me out. And, uh, well, he threw me out in a, in a not a very happy way. Um, and he replaced me with a 26-year-old teacher who was a black man, but that's what he, what he required. So you can imagine the difference between our experiences and um, what our um, capabilities were as, as managers of a wanky national park. Uh, that was in Zimbabwe. And then what is your, your connection then to South Africa and Kruger? Well, I had to get out of, out of Zimbabwe because I, I, I was threatened with extinction by Mr. Mugabe's um, 5th Brigade. And I came down here. I, I worked for a year as the Chief Nature Conservation Officer for Siskai. Um, I then spent three years as the Director of the Bundeswana National Parks Wildlife Management Board. I tried my hand at professional hunting, and um, I did that for three years. But after the kind of, of heavy big game hunting that I had had all my life up in Zimbabwe, um, trying to take a, a foreigner through um, a, a game ranch in South Africa to shoot a, a blessed buck, and he would say to me, is that blessed buck, has it got 15 and a half inch horns? Because if it isn't, I don't want to shoot it, because last year, I got one that was 15 and a quarter inches, and I don't want to get a smaller one now. And I just felt, what the hell am I doing um, in this kind of, of job compared to what my past had been? Uh, and then Kruger and then, National Park caught your attention. Well, it, it's always all, the, all these game reserves and the, and the problems they have had have always caught my attention. Um, for 30 years, I was an a investigator, wildlife management uh, journalist in South Africa, producing articles for, for hunting magazines and, uh, and wildlife magazines. I've written books that are textbooks for university on wildlife management. Um, and then, then I sat down and I wrote my, my big game hunting memoirs, which were seven books. Um, 
and and I started a writing career. And since then, I've done a lot more. I now write for Kindle. Um, and I'm now more of a writer than anything else, except that I organized or I started a small unit called the True Green Alliance, an NGO, of which I'm now the CEO. Um, and Elma sitting next to me here is my right-hand man. Um, I've got a number of good people in it as, as uh, directors. And our purpose is to try and create a society that understands the principles and practices of science-based wildlife management, that understands and supports sustainable utilization of, of wildlife resources, that supports animal welfare, that is, no cruelty involved in whatever we do, and that rejects totally, 100% totally, in fact, 2,000% totally, the animal rights movement, which I believe is the most criminal anti-wildlife organization in the world. Why do you say that? Because they are the ones that are causing all the problems. They are saying, they, they, they say, for example, if we, if we will be talking about elephants today, but I've, I've had a lot to do with black rhinos. I pioneered the capture of black rhinos with dart guns in the Zambezi Valley when I was up in Rhodesia. And I've caught and moved 140 black rhinos on my two flat feet, go in and take them out one at a time because they're different to white rhinos. They're solitary animals and they're nocturnal. So during the day, they go into thick bush and they lie down and go to sleep. And that's when we sneak up to them. And my average darting range um, in, thick, in the thick Zambezi Jess was between 6 and 13 yards. And I did that for seven years and somehow survived. That is incredible. That is so close. <laughs> it's very close. Um, and I found <laughs> I was often underneath them looking up, upwards. Cheers, from cheers to you, Ron. That is an <laughs> that's an incredible feat. Uh, well, anyway, I had a lot, a, a hell of a lot of the stuff that I did was was on elephant management. Um, and uh, what else can I say? Oh, yes, I also I became a falconer up in Rhodesia, and we formed a. Um, I wrote the falconry policy for the Department of National Parks. Um, that was absorbed into into the South African Falconry Club. In those days, South Africa did not allow falconry, but there were a number of, of very keen falconers in South Africa who took up policy, molded it into a South African form, created their own policy here in South Africa, and the falconry started here. And then they took the South African policy through to the IUCN, and falconry has now been declared to be a human heritage activity because of all this. So there are a lot of things that, that I got involved mm -hmm. with. I started crocodile farming up in Rhodesia, and so far as I did the research on it all, I got all the permits. I set the prescriptions on the permits for for getting commercial farms going. Um, so there are all sorts of things like this I got involved. I could keep you going for hours. I've had a very interesting life. Why is the Kruger National Park significant? All national parks are significant. In South Africa, Kruger National Park is significant because it's got, it's only really got one policy. It's got hundreds of sub-policies, but it's got one major policy. 
and that is to maintain species diversity. The park was set aside um, for the maintenance of, of the, the plants and the animals that occurred in the eastern Transvaal area. Um, and it, it had its objective in 1926, I think it was, when it became a, a declared national park. Um, it was given a, um, a mandate from the, from the South African Parliament, and that man, man, mandate quite simply was maintain species diversity. Your objective is to maintain species diversity. We set the park aside so that we could have a representative of all the trees and all the plants and the grasses and the insects, the reptiles, the eagles, the elephants, everything was there for everybody, for the whole of South Africa. They could go there at any time and see this heritage of South Africa. Now, unfortunately, what has happened over the years um, is that that has deteriorated due to a lot of the encroachment of these greeny people. And um, now it's most people seem to think that national parks were set aside for tourism, which is not true. Tourism can only survive and can only prosper when your ecosystems are stable and mature and not rocking around. If, if, if the foundation for tourism is not, uh, is not solid, tourism will collapse when the ecosystem collapses. And Kruger has gone through a very bad period. Um, they tried the culling route in, um, in, in 19, uh, started it in 1967, and they did it for 27 years. But their, their target, unfortunately, was to maintain the elephant population at 7,000. Now, 7,000 is twice as many as we, they should have had because when I worked at this, I, I, I worked out mathematically that the, the carrying capacity, elephant carrying capacity for Kruger National Park habitats was 3,500 plus or minus about 500. Um, so to have a, an, a culling target of 7,000 um, elephants, you re they reduced the population down to 7,000 every year, was still too high. And right throughout the culling area, the elephant removed all the top canopy trees from Kruger right down to, to zero. Um, the, the, the scientists in Kruger admit now that they have lost more than 95% of the big top canopy trees in the park. Sorry, now, Ron, sorry for interrupting you, but when you, when you talk about a top canopy tree, for those who don't know, what do you mean? Well, it's a, it's a, a mature, large mature tree with a canopy spread of, I think it's 15 meters. Um, so these are all the very big trees. Now, what use the big trees? The big trees are used by martial eagles to build their nests. Without the big trees, there would be no martial eagles. Your tawny eagles breed on the top of the trees. A lot of other eagles do as well, but um, ground hornbills um, breed in holes in these big trees, the big leadwood trees mainly. Um, so those, those particular parts of the ecosystem in Kruger are dependent, are, are absolutely vital for species like the, the, all the big eagles and the ground hornbills and those sorts of things. If you, if you look at what is happening in Kruger, your, your roan antelopes, um, 
are very, very low in number at the moment. Your sable have, uh, are now almost non-est as well. So once you start, once you start eating into the into the the structure of the habitats, you start destroying the individual habitats that specific animals require to survive. I always say that your habitats in a game reserve are more important than the animals that live inside them, the animals that are adapted to them, because as long as you've got your habitats intact and healthy, you don't have to look after the animals. They will look after themselves. Now, when they allow the elephants just to, to run, run amok from 1967 onwards, the elephant population has doubled its numbers uh, every 10 years, and there were 7,019... Um, 1965-67-1994-1994-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67-1995-67
to determine what, what a carrying capacity is. So they guess. And most of the, right throughout Africa, the, all the carrying capacity figures that I've ever heard are not based upon any scientific fact or, or math, um, mathematical equation at all. It's a guess. Someone says, well, I've been dealing with elephants for 20 years, um, like I probably do at the moment. I've been dealing with elephants for 60 years. And um, some people say this is what it is because that's what they would like to see. They don't like the idea of saying, well, now, I'm the guy who said we must cull elephants because there are too many. Very few people want to be branded with that kind of, of reputation. But the way that I worked it out with this is that Dr. Rocco Knobel, who the late Dr. Rocco Knobel, when he was director of the, of Sandparks, um, he he told me that in 19 65 that well let's go back a little bit further than that in 1944 1944 the, the people of kruger started to get worried about about the elephants because there were no elephants in kruger up until 1910 1905 there were 10 elephants 1905 no elephants in kruger at all and then by 1944 there were more elephants in Kruger than they expected to be, and they were starting to damage the trees. So they said, well, if this is going to carry on, we must we must have some checks in place where we can determine just what the elephants are doing to the habitats. So they set up a, a whole lot of, um, of botanical plots in the Satara area of the park, right in the middle of the park, which had a, a very good sample of what they considered to be the the common and most important habitat in the in the game reserve, and that is its top canopy tree habitats. Um, and they they counted ev every tree on every plot, and they came up they came up with an average number over a very large area, um, a number of thirteen trees per hectare. Now that didn't change. They checked it pretty regularly early on, and then I think they must have got a bit slack about it because they, their gaps in their comments. Um, by 19, uh, the 1950s, there had been no change in the number of top canopy trees on average in those in those experimental plots. Then, in 1965, somebody went up and counted the trees and discovered that they were down reduced between 1960. In 1965, they had been reduced down to um, nine trees per hectare. So they ran around and they said, listen, we've got to do something about this. They had a, a special meeting. It was an ordinary meeting, but a special meeting to discuss the elephants in Kruger National Park in 1965. That same year when, when they discovered this. And the, the, they asked the director, Dr. Rocker Knobel, if he would come along to the meeting because they wanted to discuss this. And he said to them, how many elephants have we got in Kruger at the moment? So they said 7,000. They were pretty sure about that. So he says, and what is the carrying capacity, your elephant carrying capacity? Nobody could tell him. So he said, well, how do you expect me to tell you how many elephants you can shoot and, and, and what, your, what your target should be at the end of the yeah, if you don't know what the carrying capacity is, because you should never 
any species of animal beyond its capacity. That is the, the, the carrying capacity, the, the, the definition is the number of elephants that a habitat can carry without the elephants doing any damage to the habitat. Now, suddenly we had here between 1960 and 1965, we had a change from 13 trees per hectare down to nine trees per hectare. They were obviously damaging their habitat. And they said there were 7,000. And he couldn't get a good number out of it from them. So he said, all right, I'll tell you what, you can carry on, you do your culling, but your target must now be uh, reduce your, your, your population down to 7,000 every year and uh, and then in the meantime, I want you guys to have a really good look at this and tell me as soon as you can what the carrying capacity is, because that is what you should be reducing them to. That's the number of elephants that the habitat can, can carry without causing damage to the habitat. That's a criteria. So they were given the go ahead. They spent two years building in 1960, it started culling and culled down to 7,000. And Rocket Noble's idea on this was that 7,000 is what they had in 1965. Let's not let them get any more than 7,000. That's why the figure 7,000 was 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 called upon to be the number of the of the culling target. A lot of people seem to think that the 7,000 is the carrying capacity of a Kruger, mm. and it's not. It's That's not what I thought. It, it's it's not at all. Let me give you some examples on this, why I think this is not at all. And this is the criteria. Kruger is, is an easy one to, to get a calculation like this. I don't know of any other gamers there where we have some of equivalent amount. Wanky, I can give you a really good idea too, and it's exactly the same as Kruger, incidentally. But in 1965, there were 7,000. In 1967, they were they were down to six thousand between nineteen sixty five and nineteen sixty seven between in those two years the the elephants had reduced the trees by another two from 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 nine until six another three by nineteen seventy four the population had been re the tree population had been re reduced down to three trees per hectare now 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 we, we we've got a, a figure here which tells us that 7,000 elephants is too many elephants for Kruger. Why? Because you're still reducing trees. The elephants were still knocking the trees out at that time. So therefore, the definition is broken at that point. It goes on in, 19, in 1981, they did another count of the trees there, and they found the trees were down to 1.5 trees per hectare. And in 1994, there were no trees left in, in any of the study areas. So now you had right through the culling area, era, you had 7,000 as the target, and the trees were continually being, being knocked down by the elephants throughout that period. That tells you 7,000 is far too many elephants for Kruger. So how many elephants should Kruger be carrying? Well, um, it, it's a moot point, but let me tell you what, what, what well, I did to work this out, was that during the 1950s, just before the elephants started hammering the trees, the elephants must have been at a number that was 
equivalent to the carrying capacity or within the carrying capacity of the Kruger habitats. There was no tree damage in the 1950s, but in 1965, they were down to nine trees. So now, how do we find out how many trees there were, say, in 1955, in the middle of the 1950s, when we know it was within the carrying capacity at that time? Well, if you if you can double um, a, a, an elephant population um, in in ten years going forwards in time, which is Kruger, it's six point five percent annual increment. If you want to know how many elephants were in the game reserve ten years before that particular time, you don't double the number; you halve the number. Mm-hmm. So, in 1955. There must have been, which is within the carrying capacity, there must have been half of 7,000, which, which is 3,500. And I don't think there is anybody is going to get any closer to what that, that figure actually is, because those figures make sense. That's how I say, and I'm adamant about this, that the Kruger elephants, when the habitats were healthy, the habitats could carry three three and a half thousand elephants without the elephants doing any serious damage to the habitat that they left behind so that's how i came by it so about three and a half thousand then would be kruger's carrying capacity at that time yes now the habitat is deteriorated it must be less than that now less must be sure so because your habitat 1955 was damaged it is now damaged it's damaged because 95% of the top canopy trees have disappeared and more. Mm. So, so it, it must, every year, that carrying capacity, as long as your elephants are remaining um, uh, above the carrying capacity, they are damaging the habitat every single year. The carrying capacity is getting less and less and less and less. Elephants, elephants, their main diet, look, elephants are principally grazers. They're called a preferential grazer, which means that they will eat grass in preference to anything else when the grass is green and palatable. And even when it's brown, as long as it's palatable, they will eat it in preference to anything else. When there is no grass, then they go on to eating the cambium bark of trees. Now, cambium is a is a um, one of the, if, if you look at a tree trunk, you get all the different rings uh, on a tree trunk giving you the different ages, but between the outer bark and, and the wood itself, there is a there is a um, a tissue in there called the cambium, and it's like soft leather. And uh, that is the stuff that makes the outer bark and it makes the inner wood. And it, it's absolutely vital to the tree. When, when, when an elephant goes in to eat the cambium bark, it peels off the outer tree the outer bark, then it eats the cambium, in in, in short, um, and it leaves the, the, the rest of the tree standing. If that cambium is taken out all the way around the trunk, the whole tree dies. And all the elephant is doing is eating that, that thin little bit of, of white leather, if you like, that is inside. It's soft and, and pliable. Um, and that becomes in the in the dry season. The cambium is the most important food for elephants. It's also a food that the Nordic countries, for example, when they have bad winters or cold winters, 
um, they use it as, as a human um, emergency as well. So cambium is well known. The Red Indians in America used to eat cambium too. But the, that's, their, that's the elephant's main diet. That's why they cause so much damage to trees. Um, okay, so if the carrying capacity is around 3,500, and the current number, I think you said, is about 35,000 officially, how do they know that? Well, I don't know, because I, I, I don't know what they have done in terms of counts in, in recent years. At one stage, they said that the elephants had stabilized at 15,000, and they weren't getting any more, and then it was up to 17,000, and I didn't buy any of that. They had done no counts on this on that at that time anyway. I think they have done some counts in the meantime, but um, you'd have to ask them how how they know how many elephants they've got. Because if you add, if you start in 1994, double the numbers, you've got 7,000 1994. Double the numbers every 10 years and see what you've got by 19 by 2024. And I think you'll find it's a hell of a lot more than, than 3,400, which is what they say they've got now. Uh, it sounds like a stupid question, but what actually does it mean if there are too many elephants in Kruger? It means that, well, one of the things it means is that there will be no big trees left there for the, for the martial eagles and the ground hornbills to breed in. And that means that they're not looking after their uh, biological diversity. And remember, I said that the parliamentary mandate, the single most important thing that the parliament said to them was maintain your species diversity. And Kruger haven't done that. The Stafford Kruger have not done that. If they had done it properly, there would have been no problem. You to worry about a sample or an antelope or ground hornbills or martial eagles persisting. Martial eagles disappear and, and that sort of thing. They're gone forever. There's this next door to Kruger where they can recruit new martial eagles or ground hornbills, all these other things. So what does it mean? It means what the elephants will do is it means that they will destroy the biological diversity of Kruger National Park. And that is a terrible thing. Mm. Um, one of the things that they're doing up in the in the in the northern part, for example, is eating all the baobab trees. Now, yeah, yeah, we saw that as well. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of baobab trees, not not just one or two, rows and rows and rows of them. Now, some of those baobab trees, the very big ones, reach an age of about five thousand years. Now, if if that is true, um. And there are lots of people who have said that sort of thing. Then these very big trees were already 1,700 years old when Tutankhamun was pharaoh of Egypt. Now, what is more important? What is more iconic than a baobab tree of that size or an elephant that grows to 60 years maximum? Yeah, but I think, I think Ron, you and I both know that where this conversation is leading is extremely uncomfortable for a lot of people because I think what you're suggesting is that there has to be a return to culling and nobody wants to think of the big, beautiful, majestic elephants being shot. Well, then they must stop talking a lot about looking after species diversity and things because that is what wildlife management is all about. 
It's not about elephants. It's not about tourists. It's not about somebody's um, emotional concerns about these things. It's the hard fact about how do you how do you manage a game reserve? What is the reason why a game reserve is there? It's there to maintain species diversity, number one above all else. And the only way you can do that is by maintaining your your animal species populations in numbers that are within the carrying capacity of their habitat. And that's not just elephants, it's everything. Kruger have made a few attempts over the years to try and bring down those numbers from opening the border, I think, to Mozambique, to uh, adjusting the uh, the underground water, uh, those artificial pumps, that sort of thing, to, to, to affect um, habits and behavioral patterns of the elephants. Is any of that true, and has any of that made any difference? It, well, first of all, to answer your last question first, it's made no difference. Um, your, your elephants are... Are not are not migratory. They they don't move out in 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 big numbers in particular directions like the geese in Canada go up to the Arctic to breed during the summer months and then they fly down to to the middle part of of North America in the winter time. They can't live up there because of the snow. That's a migration. What what we have with elephants in places like like Wanky and um, uh, Botswana and, and other areas like this is that at the height of the dry season, your elephants um, concentrate near water because they have to have water at the height of the dry season. And as soon as it rains and the whole area is watered out, your your elephant populations leave their dry season home ranges. They don't leave them all together, but they expand outwards from their dry season home ranges into a summer season or a wet season home range, which is very large. And as it as the season dries out again, so they focus back on areas which where they know where the water is. You know, the, 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 these elephants know the areas that they live in. They they don't just wander around the bush. They, they have they have got home ranges where they get to know where all the water is, where all the good food is, where they have to go to, whatever they want to do, and and they they operate within that area. You if you take down if you take down fences, for example, you can the the elephants will move out um, of, of that area during the wet season and back again during the dry season. There are other things involved in this too, though. If your elephants, if you're, if there are people living anywhere, anywhere outside the, the the game reserve, and they exceed 15, 15 people per square kilometer, or I think it's one one person um, or per one square kilometer, or 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 per forty square. How am I getting it right now? I'm not getting it right. Fifteen people per square kilometer. Um, if there are people living in there, that the elephant cows won't stay there with their calves. The bulls will go, and they will raid the crops, and they will drink the people's water, and and the cows won't go anywhere near. They will just concentrate in areas. So, whatever we're going to do with the expanse of of human populations in Africa this century, you're going to get these areas. Of, of heavy human occupation, which the cow herds will not go into. So they, as soon as they reach a certain proportion, um, 
a certain size of population, your elephant cow herds will disperse from, away from those areas back into areas where there are, are no people living. So looking ahead this year or this century, um, it's going to get more and more congested with people and less and less will it be suitable for, for elephants at all. So if, if you look at it in the longer term, just by saying we're going to open up the fences and let them expand out, if you, they're expanding into human areas, their human areas will become occupied by human beings before the end of this century. That means wherever the elephants move into now won't be suitable for them later on when the people are there. So what we've got to do, we've, we have got a boundary, we have got a, a, a national park uh, that is demarcated, we, we know its boundaries, we know that the people hopefully aren't, aren't going to invade the game reserve. So we're going to have to work out a management regime which allows us to, to have the elephants permanently in an area where, where they will feel happy to live. If you take down half the fences, if you, if you took the fences down near um, Bushbuck Ridge, for example, where there they, they are, in fact, all, all around Kruger, there are about 2 million people living around the boundaries of Kruger. If you took all the boundaries down there, the, the elephants aren't going to move into all those areas where there are people. They will, the cowherds will still keep out. And if the cowherds are out, then it's not a suitable area um, for the elephant as a species because the bulls will still be going out doing their thing. So we, we've got to come, we've got to work out a management equation which allows us to maintain all the species in Kruger National Park. All the species of, of, of plants, of grasses, of, of fishes, elephants, the whole bank should, can live within that area for all time. And we, they, must, they must, be, must be able to live in an area sustainably. And if, you've got, if your elephants are damaging the habitat all the time, whenever they get reach uh, above the carrying capacity, if you're getting damaged habitats in there, then what's going to happen is uh, the, the, the game is there will, will not be able to hold all, all these species there at the same time. Are there, are there other animals in Kruger that are over capacity? Uh, I don't know. Um, offhand, I don't know. Um, but, but quite possibly they are. I'm, I'm not sure what the hippo the population is like, for example, but hippos also do a lot of, of heavy grazing. And I know in the, in the Ghana Rajor in, um, in Zimbabwe, the hippos in the Lundi River there walk eight miles every night. Eight miles, that is. That's uh, whatever that is in kilometers. Um, and they graze the grass flat, mm. like, a lawn, like a lawn. And that means that your wildebeest and your sable and the buffalo and all these other things that eat the grass that the hippos are also eating, they 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 lose out. And um, in 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 the Lundi River, we we had a situation where I, one year I took out three hundred hippos, for example, because Jeez. of this fact. And the sable were almost down to nothing. The buffalo were badly affected. Um, the, the roan and other species were very badly affected because they a hippo can walk eight, eight miles 
in one night and back to the water again. It can do that because it's it's capable of doing that. But something like a a bushbuck or a an orabi or something like that can't walk that distance. So you what finds then you find these other animals start becoming deprived of their food resources and various other requirements that have in a habitat and and they just dwindle away until there's nothing left so you lose species and if you're going to if you're going to do what you're supposed to be doing in a national park maintaining species diversity you cannot allow it to have one species one elephant the elephant for example is one species to destroy the habitats for all the other species that's 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 not how it's done yeah I, I remember when we were there, I think seeing elephants was pretty much as common as seeing some sort of buck. I keep hearing in the media that they're endangered. An endangered species means that it is facing, it is declining and facing extinction. The elephant is not declining, it's increasing in size. How can you call the elephant an endangered species? The only people who call endangered species, elephants endangered species, are animal rights people. And they do it for a reason, to get up the hype and the emotion in the public so that they can put their money into their pockets to give them money to, to stop this endangered species from becoming extinct. That's rubbish. I'm, we're just talking about, um, about Kruger um, having to cull probably 30,000 elephants if they want to bring them down to, it's, it's actually population reduction rather than culling, bringing it down to the carrying capacity. In Botswana, when you look at the situation there, they've got 220,000 Minimum elephants there, and they've probably got some say it's up to 250,000. There are five countries there, um, which are all trying to do everything in, in one big um, management unit, but they've got these masses of elephants, and those elephants all require this is what most people don't understand they all require uh, adult elephants require 300 kilograms of food per day to stay alive. Now, if you've got 200,000 elephants and they are in living in, in an area where they're not going to get rain for six months, so there's no growing of new food, they've got to eat the food that is there, where are they, where are they going to find two, two, two to 300 um, um, kilograms of food per day to stay alive for six months? And that's the problem. When when we, we we've just done a tour of of Botswana, and on the floodplain, um, at at Kasani in, in the Chobe, we saw these elephants going out onto the onto the the, the floodplain where the grass is is that high. It's green. It's like a lawn, because everything eats it. But the elephants can't pull those little blades of 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 grass up. So what they do is they put their toe, like this, in the ground. And they and they they dig with their toenails, and they dig in a, a place out about um, about that wide and and about that long and and half half a centimeter deep. They just dig out the top of the grass and the roots underneath. Then they pick all that up and eat it. Now they're out there in the heat of the day all day, the whole day long, and that's what they're doing. And those big elephants are having to take. 300 kilograms of food when there's nothing else to eat because everything around there has been eaten out. They've destroyed the whole river and forest along the Chobe River, completely destroyed it. They destroyed a, a woodland, a, a very big woodland in, 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 uh, in, in the Sududu Valley where there were 600 trees, these big um, camel thorn trees, 
They were two, 200 year, uh, 400 years old, 600 trees. Every single one of them, every single one of them is dead. They counted them in 65 and 2004 when they went back again. It was 39 years later. Those trees were gone. Ron, when when we were there earlier this year, we drove between the two camps. Um, I think it's uh, Bergendahl and Latarba. Now, just for those who aren't familiar, that's quite a long distance. I think, what, 200 kilometers? About that, yes. And a large section of that drive was just flat. Well, I, I mentioned to you that they had in the Satara area, they had plots put out there which they had measured out and they had counted the numbers of trees. There were 13 trees per hectare. It was all in that big flat area you're talking about. And how many and how many trees do you see? Nothing. You see nothing. All you see mm. are these dead things sticking up, skeletons sticking up in the air. Yeah, there were no trees. That used to be what what the scientists, the botanists called in those days, the best sample of, of the deciduous woodland in Kruger National Park. That's why they did their study there. And it's all gone. Every, practically every tree is gone. And the sad thing is, is that it takes many, many years for all those trees to grow back. Yes. And 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 lots of people are saying, oh, but the elephant helps the woodland because they eat the, they eat the seeds of the trees. Then mm -hmm. they go and they drop it in their dung all over the place, and then they grow best because it's been through the digestive system of an elephant. And the elephant then helps the woodland to get going. My my counter to that is you've got to have trees that are bearing fruit before the elephants can eat the fruit that the trees are bearing. Now, yeah. there are no trees to bear fruit, so that argument is absolutely fallacious. And it, it's a, it's a, a slight on, 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 on man's common sense. Yeah. What most people don't understand is that elephant cows and elephant bulls live two totally separate lives. You get cow herds with their calves and everything staying together as a family unit, and your bulls go off in big, big herds. The, the biggest herd up until this time when I went into, into Botswana, um, the biggest herd of elephants I've, I counted was 108 bull elephants in one herd. That's a hell of a lot of elephants. I've seen, I think, 10 times that amount in one herd. I've got films of it which will be coming out um, when we finished our, our documentary on, on Botswana. But they live totally different lives. Now, we also get the story from the animal rights groups who tell the whole world that this business of shooting elephants that have got 100-pound tusks aside, this destroys the strong gene pools of your, of your elephant population. Um, that it's those old bulls with the big heavy tusks. Those are the ones that put genes into the population. They breed with cows and they put the genetic makeup that give the, these elephants these big tusks. This is nonsense. If you, a year or two ago, I, I tried to work out a, a system which explains very nicely what I'm talking about. Elephants live to a, a, the ripe old age of 60 years, roughly. Um, they certainly don't grow much more than that. So you can say an elephant bull's life has got four quarters, and each quarter is 15 years. So the first 15 years are from the time when they, with their mothers, their little babies, they grow up, 
At 15, they're kicked out of the herd by the by the, the, the bigger cows. They then go and join the bulls as 15-year-olds. So you've got the first life quarter of these young bulls. You then, but from young, from, um, from a very, very young age, when, when, when they're only a matter of months old, these young bulls with their mothers are fighting each other under their mother's legs because there's a natural inclination about bulls to, to contest each other. When they leave, when they leave their mother's apron strings, they then move into the second life quarter, which is the 15 to 30 year olds. And there they're growing up as young teenagers. Now they, they are, um, they are then contesting with each other. They're trying to find some form of, um, of um, rank structure. Um, amongst themselves. You get the same thing in schools where, where little boys are bullying each other around because one guy's bigger than the other guy or something. The elephants do exactly the same thing. But at, at the 15 to 30 uh, year group, that is your second life quarter bulls, they are still youngsters growing up. And the third life quarter bulls, which are the ones from 30 to 45, they are now adults and they are they are then they are the bulls that are breeding, that are doing the breeding. Now, the young bulls are still fighting for, for position because breeding in elephants comes here. The elephant bull has to come into must, a state of must, which is a hormone, hormonal state which puts them into ready, readiness for copulation. The cows do the same thing. They go into oestrus and they go into a hormonal thing ready for copulation as well. And only bulls in must, cows in oestrus mate. They don't mate otherwise. Now, if you've got a herd of bulls over here, not all the bulls go into must. They go to must two, three times a year, and then they go out on their own looking for looking for cows in, in Eustace. Now, the bulls with the highest rank come into must the most 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 of the time. Ones of lesser rank don't get any look in here. Now your your third life quarter bulls fight with the second life quarter bulls well they don't they just discipline them they go in there and, and, and bully them um, and because they're so much bigger these younger bulls uh, are disciplined by by the older ones this is where the discipline comes in at, at the third life quarter when they're 30 to 45 years old fully mature that's when when the breeding is done after they've and all the time they were fighting with each other in the second life quarter and the third life quarter, in order to get extra rank, they have got another thing where they come in and they, they say to their friends, just watch me, I'm bigger and stronger than you are, I can push down this tree. So they then push down the tree and, and they gain kudos from this, they gain rank amongst themselves of pushing down trees. And it's my opinion that in, in most game reserves, um, that the number of trees that are pushed down for rank purposes is more than the trees that are destroyed for eating. So sure. that that behavior pattern accounts for more trees than, than just the feeding pressure. Now, once you get beyond your third life quarter and you go into your fourth life quarter, 45 to 60 year old, these these elephants now, they, ha they only have six sets of molars, elephants, in their lifetime. 
And by the time they're going into their fourth life quarter, they're onto their second lot of, or, or their, their last lot of teeth. And when those teeth wear out and they crumble up and they fall out, the elephant can't masticate its food. It has to chew all this bark and stuff. Um, they can't do that because their molars, their teeth aren't there any longer. They've fallen out. And, and most elephants, when they, when they reach that 60-year-old, actually die of starvation because they can't chew their food. Now, an elephant that is declining, is being kicked, is, it's become a fourth-life quarter animal. It's senile. It's not putting any calcium into its teeth. It's putting more calcium into its tusks then, uh, so the theory goes. Um, and therefore, it gets longer tusks. And it doesn't fight with, the, with these third-life quarter bulls because it's not strong enough. These are young animals. You don't find me going into a bunch of 45, 50-year-old guys and having a fisty cup because I want to go and buy a girl a, a drink at a bar. I mean, I'd get, duff, I'd get duffed up so bloody quickly that it wouldn't be true. They have the same problem. Elephants have the same problem. So when, when they're in their fourth-life quarter, you find that they are reluctant to fight with a third-life quarter bull because they know that they're going to get beaten up. Now, in Kruger National Park, there's a, uh, something else is, is cropping up there, and that is that all the big tusks... Did you go into the museum at the, at the yeah. top? Yeah, uh, we took photographs with those, with those tusks that are unbelievably huge. Yeah. Now, those elephants, when you look at the age of them, they're all... Um, 55 to 60 year old those very they aren't they aren't anymore like that no no what what is happening nowadays is that there, there aren't any elephants in kruger that i i've been i understand that there are no elephants in kruger that are more than 50 years old anymore mm, i heard that as well because what is happening now is that these elephants now are fighting with younger stronger bulls and they're getting duffed up and they're getting killed and not only is that just a reality of elephants in the in, when they're carrying the when the carrying capacity is correct, when you get more elephants, you now say they've got five times as many elephants there as they should have. There are five times as many bulls in their third life quarter to duff up the fourth life quarter bulls. So therefore, there's more, there's less opportunity for those fourth life quarter bulls to be able to get mate with cows. Because there are more younger, slightly younger animals, which are breeding at the time, are prepared to go in there and duff, up, uh, duff them up in order to have the right to mate. So it gets very complex. So what, in your opinion, Ron, um, is the right thing to do? Uh, let's, I, I know that you're probably going to say culling, but are there any other options first? To, that can be explored. Well, they've tried, they've tried um, contraceptives, and there there are problems with contraceptives. If you've got thirty, forty, fifty thousand elephants running around, or two hundred thousand elephants running around, um, you have to give them a booster. If you if you you can go up with a helicopter and put a dart into into a cow, and um, make her infertile. But then you've got to give her a booster every six months. And you've got 200,000 elephants to go up and say, well, did I do that one last week or whatever? You can't do it. It's not, And it's a hell of a price, too. 
For what? You don't say to a farmer, I don't like the idea of you sending your Brahmin cows to the abattoir every every month. So I'm going to come in here and I'm going to inject all your cattle so that none of them become pregnant and then you won't have any excuse to send them to the abattoir. I mean, that's absolute nonsense. And you've got to you've got to transfer that kind of mentality to, to the wildlife as well. Wildlife is highly valuable. And the only reason that people will want to, to look after wildlife is if it has a value. If you know that that elephant bull there, if you can sell it to a hunter, for example, for $2 million, $2 million, and these very big bulls, you can do that, you're not going to let any Tom, Dick, and Harry shoot it, or you're going to look after those animals as, as, as though they're gold. And that's how it should be. The, the, the sustainable use of wildlife is the one thing, the one thing that can save Africa's wildlife is when the local people make enough money from the harvesting, from the sustainable harvesting of their wildlife, they will then, the local people will be the people to, to look after it. Ron, what about uh, sending those elephants elsewhere? Sure. You, you give me the money. If we, we, when we want to take my recommendation for Botswana, for example, is that they, they should take off to um, 100,000 elephants now. To, to save their national parks. Um, so they can take 100,000 elephants and go and put them in West Africa, and I'm sure that the Botswana government would be very happy to allow them to come and to do it if they have the money to be able to do it. And the it could be done if if these other people want, wanted to make money, um, if, if, if a place like Kruger, for example, sand parks in South Africa wanted to make make a bit of money out of the elephants to help their park, they could they could sell the elephants to West Africa. And these are animal writers who are doing all this damage to us now by saying that we must shoot elephants, we must stop trafficking. Hunting is bad, which is rubbish. That's but if they could use that money to say we're going to buy, we're going to buy. A thousand elephants in Kruger National Park, and we're going to transport um, transport them to Ghana. Get big aircraft and put them in there, and take them off to Ghana. I'm sure that that would be a good solution that sand parks would consider, and they would then get the money from the sale of those elephants to help the national park. This is the economics of it. So that could be done, but do you think these people are going to these people who are making money out of the gullible public? by coming up with these big stories about how cruel it is to shoot an animal or whatever, they, they won't want to reduce their income because they're living like off the fat of the land. So there are solutions to it, but it costs money. Is it expensive to move? Obviously, you can't move one elephant. You have to move the whole family. Well, it is. But if you want to take them to West Africa, which is where they'd be most useful, it's a hell of a long way from here to West Africa. And that means you, you've, you've got to carry them all that way. I should imagine to, to help the animals, you would have to have stoppages along the way where you could let them out and let them run around for three or four days, reload them and send them on. Um, I don't know what the logistics of it would be, but it can be done. We have done it. We've done lots of this. Um, and, and, and there are people who know, who know how to do it. All the techniques have been done, but it just costs a lot of money. And you don't really need that. If your populations are going to double their numbers every 10 years, and they are, if the food conditions are right, if the habitats are healthy, you put, you put 
50 elephants into an area, put 10 elephants into an area, they double their numbers every every 10 years. Now that's the way to 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 do this. What do you do with with, with the other? Okay, so you you get rid of 10,000 elephants or a, or a, or a hundred a hundred elephants. You just end up, if if you're taking them out of Botswana, you've still got nearly 200,000 that you want to take off anyway in one year which you should be taking off now. What are you going to do with the rest of them? We've got to get away from this idea that lethal management is wrong because lethal management is very often the only thing that can be used, the only thing that is practical and that makes common sense. Um, but if Kruger is not looking very healthy at the moment, which it isn't, um, is, it, is it still mathematically correct to say that the elephant population is doubling every 10 years? Well, that's a very good question, and the answer is that it is likely, it is likely that the the um, the population will will slacken off on on that thing, but not yet. There's still there's no shortage of food there, and one of the reason, reasons I can say that is that in in Botswana, for example, for the last 10, 15 years, um, the the elephants have eaten up all their food close to the water during the dry season. And and I, I found out 10 years ago, I had a, a, a guy in a, in a chopper uh, aircraft help me on this one. Elephants were leaving the Chobe River, walking through the teak forest and going away to get food. They were moving up to 25 kilometers every, every day to get food and 25 kilometers back to the river again to get water because there's no water where the food is. There's no food where the water is. So they had to move every day. But the amount of energy, and you can imagine if they haven't to move that distance and they've got a tiny baby calf with them, is that baby calf going to be able to walk that distance? It's, it's surely not. But, but what, what happens is that the amount of energy that an elephant needs to walk from the water for 25 kilometers to where the food is and then back again another 25 kilometers to the water, the amount of energy they get from the food they eat is less than the, than the energy that they need to get from the water to the food and back again to the water. So therefore, you had a negative factor when it came to energy energy consumption. What was happening then was the mothers. It was was very stressful. Stressful. The elephants, elephant mothers, have to eat enough to keep themselves alive, and they've got to eat enough to produce extra milk to feed their babies. So when the food, when you've got this this energy problem, um, slackening off the effect of the energy that they're able to eat, the mothers stop producing milk. Then your baby elephants, your baby elephants, are then abandoned near the, near the rivers by their mothers because if their mothers don't walk that distance, the mothers will die as well as the babies. So when the babies don't have enough strength to follow their mothers on that big long trip every day, every day. Then what happens is the mothers abandon their babies and the babies walk around on their own, one, two, and three-year-olds walking around on their own near the water and the lions and the hyenas get hold of them and they kill them and they eat them. And then it, it, in, in, in one period uh, about 10 years ago, um, the, the tourist operators out of Kasani in, in, in the Chobe area, for example, in Botswana, uh, they they used to look for vultures in the sky to see where where the where the vultures were over the top where the lions are with, mm. with baby elephants, and that's where they would take the the visitors to go and look at lions, 
because it was the one way, the surefire way to find lions is to look for the vultures and they would tell you where the kills were. You go there, there are lions on, on, on the baby elephants. And now we've got people saying, we don't have to worry about culling elephants because the lions are doing it for us. The lions are now predating on the elephants. Now, this is a good thing, but it's predating on baby elephants. And, you know, if, if you're concerned about emotions, what is your emotion going to be like when they, when they know that these, these lions are killing these baby elephants because the babies can't keep up with their mothers? So the whole thing is becoming a mess. Um, yeah. And, okay, so Ron, I don't know if you know the answer, but why has this happened? Because I can tell you exactly why it has happened. Because man is the apex predator in Africa. He always has been. But modern, modern emotional um, love of animals, so supposed love of animals is such that the, the modern man in the big cities of, 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 the, of the world says that man must leave nature to its own devices. When you leave, leave nature to, to its own devices, you get exactly what you have just told me about that you saw at the, in the Satara area where everything is flat. There are no trees left at all. The elephants have cleaned them out. That's what happens when you leave elephants to, their own, to, to nature to, to do its own thing. And you can't do that. Man is a predator. Man is the apex predator. He's always preyed on elephants. We had no overpopulation of elephant problem when there were still ivory hunters in Africa. And in, 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 in any case, it's, it's not so much the bulls that you want to kill. You, you have to take out the breeding stock, which are your cows, because they're the ones that produce the calf. They're the ones that keep increasing the size of the population. If there are a lot more elephants in close proximity, does it make them more aggressive and more moody? If you went to the, if you had been to a number of game reserves and gone to the Gonorajor, where your elephants are very aggressive, and I was in charge of the Gonorajor for five and a half years, I knew it very well. Um, I also reduced the elephant population there from 5,000 to 2,500 in 1971 and 72 for just the reasons that we're talking about now. So I'm not talking through the back of my head. I've done it. And, um, uh, the the big the big the big thing is is that one person nowadays nowadays one person who's very good at doing some who's tr been trained to do this sort of thing has to replace what a thousand men used to do in in the old days as man being the the apex predator your your um, People would go out and they'd shoot one elephant a year and come back again. But a thousand of them did that, you've shot a thousand elephants. Now, you haven't got all these people doing that, so one person has to go out and do, do the, the thousand elephants. It's a, it's, it, it still doesn't remove man from being the apex predator. And what people have got to start, when the whole world has got to start to understand, is you cannot remove man from the equation. Man is part of the animal kingdom, and he is the apex predator throughout the world on all these things. So that, that is why a lot of people say, what happened when, when, when man wasn't here? What did the elephants do? Man has always been here. He's always been killing elephants. 
He's always been the apex predator. And as soon as you take him out of the picture, you are disturbing nature. I've been doing this all my life. Since I was 20 years old, and I'm now an old man. But um, <laughs> um, I am. I, at least I'm constantly told I'm an old man. Um, but I, as I say, this has been part of my life. And I've had to, to be able to do these things properly, I've had to analyze what I was doing and why I was doing it. And then how, I, how it would be best to do it. Um, and it, it's something that would horrify everybody if, if only they knew the sort of things that we had to get up with. What, what we try to do with this documentary film on Kruger and what we are doing right now with the documentary I'm writing on, on the, the film clips we've got for Botswana is that we are, the, the, the purpose of those trips was not to film elephants was to film the impact that the elephants were having on their habitat. And that means that we had to illustrate what we were seeing, what we were looking for, from what we were seeing and how it was being applied and what it was all about. So I can understand if people from Johannesburg or Cape Town, excuse me the pun, <laughs> if you go to Kruger National Park and you, you don't know what you're looking for, I wanted to say to them, this is what you've got to look for. Mm. This is what you've got to look for. If you look here, look that documentary because um, we have seen that lots of people go to Kruger and they love Kruger and I can understand why, mm. Mm. but they don't know what is happening and they'd be horrified if they really knew what was happening. I'm just hoping we're going to get enough people to say this and say we have to join the Common Sense Brigade and we now have to start backing people like me who are saying these things and putting pressure on our government and on sand parks to do something about the problem. I would like to, something to be done along the lines. We've got a good example, a good, um, uh, not example, we've got a good um, um, case here for saying that you've got Kruger National Park has got 2 million people around its boundaries, living living on the boundaries, which means you can't take the fences down, the elephant cowherds won't go to where the people are. You take the fences down, the people will get, fences do two things, they either keep the animals in or they keep the people out. And uh, th those fences now becoming more important in keeping the people out of Kruger than keeping the game in it. In it. But you've still got to remove these these animals, and there's, there's a huge amount of animals that um, that have to come off. Elephants. Let's just talk about elephants. That's what we're talking about. If you could, if you could divide Kruger National Park into into blocks all the way around inside and then have equivalent blocks on the outside. And the people living on the outside in those blocks would go into a partnership with sand parks of the equivalent size block inside the park and then say, right, we've now got a partnership here and the, the park is going to work with the people to allow the people to benefit from the elephants. We have seen what has happened to the white rhinos in Kruger National Park with people living on the outside when they get no benefits from it. They go in and they take it. What happens was going to happen to Kruger when all the people get the hell in with sand parks and say, we're going to go and we're going to take the elephants. 
then there'll be everyone will be up in arms about that as well. But if those people are making money out of the elephants, if they had been making money out of the white rhinos, and the white rhinos had been taken off sustainably, and the people had had seen the benefit of working with the parks, we would never have had the the the, the, the kill rates that we have had now. We've had a totally criminal situation going on with two million people. I'm not talking about half a dozen people. At the moment, there are two million people living around the boundaries of the park. So if you had an area that had a block of 50, 50 square kilometers inside the park, 50 square kilometers outside the park, and all these people in parks got into one unit and had a partnership there, you could shoot elephants in the park, in my opinion. You don't have to say we have never shot elephants in the park and that's not on. That's rubbish. You've got to think new on this. You've got to be able to say we've got a new situation on our hands here and we have to deal with it. You said yourself, what are they going to do with 30,000 too many elephants? This is what you can do with them. You could, you could put hunters in there, triple the price for an elephant license, triple it. And give the people half of that license, and you and park take the other half because you're in partner in a partnership here. You give the people half an elephant carcass every time one is shot. You give them half the elephant hide that they can then prepare for for the taxidermist, and then somebody else can have a business making furniture out of elephant hide, which is beautiful hide. And you did that, you'd very quickly find that the, if somebody came in from from far away to walk through these people land to go through the fence to go and shoot shoot one of their elephants that they should be getting the benefit from the local people won't allow them through and the local people will then become the elephants chief protectors and we've got to start thinking in this manner in order to to overcome the management problems we've got what do you do with 30,000 too many elephants? this is what you can do with it but nobody thinks that way because all they think of it at the moment, from what I can gather, is tourism. Tourism is a be-all and end-all. Tourism should only be allowed when you have got everything sorted out and everything is stable. And the net result is that you have the Kruger National Park regrowing its trees and going back to its original purpose. I'm going to put something out now for, for you to think about. And maybe we can develop something from this or somebody else will develop from it. My idea on the Kruger Park and on Botswana, I've already uh, sent a letter to Botswana, the Botswana government on this, recommending that they should re-establish the, the woodland of those 600 big trees um, in the Sedudu Valley and the, um, the Pafuri Forest, Riverine Forest, where, where there's nothing left. I mean, everything has just been bashed to pieces. And the same is going to happen in Pafuri if we're not careful. It's happening there already. <clears throat> but um, Sorry, where's, where's, where's Pafuri? Pafuri is right on the, the top end of Kruger. Ah, on the top side, okay. It's a ribbon of, of forest along the river. Um, but if you had to have... Um, what are we talking about now? I've forgotten. <laughs> uh, you, said you, you said that you uh, sent a letter to the Botswana government. Oh, yes about re-establishing the habitats. I would like to think that Botswana and South Africa would think about this fact, that to be able to regrow those habitats, you have to have seed. 
So you could start off by getting the Dendrological Society of South Africa, the Tree Society of South Africa, for example, organizing themselves with other parts of government and other entities to, to raise funds to get children to collect the seeds of a lot of the acacia trees and other things like this that we can use to replant this, to replant the whole thing. Um, get the school children to pick up the seeds. Go to the big businesses like Standard Bank or, or these other big, big moneyed people. Get them to undertake to to prepare the ground for planting the seeds in these areas. Put up fences in the area. It's 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 going to be a bit unsightly to begin with. You won't be able to just see um, wild country because it's got to be protected from elephants. But it won't do any good at all until you've reduced your elephant population from 30,000 to three and a half. And how long, how long do you see this type of process happening, assuming that it would go ahead? I mean, that's a lot of elephants. It can happen easy. Um, it can happen very easy. Um, you can you, you one one culling team or not it's not culling it's population reduction it's it's more than culling culling is when you go and you say these elephants are increasing i've got a thousand elephants here they're increasing at the rate of of 7.5 percent per annum so you go in every year and you take out five percent of those elephants and you keep the population stable you just don't let it get too many that's culling if you want to take 30,000 elephants off, if you want to take 100,000 elephants off, as which are two quite possible possibilities, um, then what you do is your population reduction, and you rem you just remove vast numbers of elephants out. In the, in the Gonorizor, um I headed the team which took out um, 2,500 from a population of 5,000. We took off 50%. Um, over one month in, in 1971, one month in 1972, and we did the whole job. We taken them off at 41.6 per day. Everything was processed. The hides were taken off. The meat was taken off. The, the tusks were stamped with numbers. All the meat was turned into biltong and, and processed for human consumption. All the autopsies were done in the field. And when we had finished the whole thing, having all the skins were taken back, cleaned out and everything, we were a big, big bunch of people to be able to do this. There was, they were salted and folded and dried up under tarpaulin tents. And it was, it was dried out slowly like this and then eventually dried out completely and taken out. The elephant hides sometimes up to about two, two inches thick. So it takes a, a lot of preparation. The preparing of the, of the meat in required long areas of chicken wire put out on, on poles, um, lying on the ground just to get them six inches off the ground to let the air underneath. And there was the, the bouton pieces were sorted and laid out and, uh, and dried out. I thought we'd see lots of vultures eating the meat, lots of hyenas coming in at night. We had none of those problems. And we did this in the bush, one bit there, one bit there, one bit there. And, um, that was all done. That can be done, and it should be done. But we want you want you want the benefits of this to go to the local people because you want them on sides. Why did all of this fall apart? They were inexperienced on Kruger for one, but it wasn't Kruger. Prior to 1994, you had these problems as well. 
I mean, the, the, the whole culling thing initiated in 1965. That was, that was some time ago. Um, so it was long, long before. It's, it's, not, it's not political. It became political later on when, when, when people who, without experience, and we had the same thing up in Zim, um, you, you, people who are not experienced were given jobs for which they, knew, they didn't know the intricate details. And then, then you have got problems. If, if you've got the, 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 the will amongst the people interacting with each other to train each other properly, um, there, there are a lot of advantages to have this fresh look at it. Because all sorts of other ideas come up. I mean, um, who, who would have thought that through a very simple little process, we were able to find out what I consider to be exactly what the carrying capacity for elephants were. When you tell me how you go to Botswana, you go to any of these other big places anywhere in Africa, and you're confronted with herds of elephants all over the place, how the hell are you going to work out what the carrying capacity is? It's almost impossible to do so. We were lucky with Kruger, very lucky with Kruger, except we did have one in, in Wanky in 1960, as far as early as that. We came out with the same answer. One, one elephant per, per five square kilometers. And, you know, I saw uh, in your documentary uh, a satellite photograph of Bergendahl. Uh, my word, uh, that, that made the hair on my arms stand up. The campsite is green, and right outside, right around the campsite, it's brown and dead. Good show. Well done. That's what we wanted people to see. And there are lots of things. That when the, the Rhone camp that we visited, too, it was an eye-opener. When you see a fence that has been there for 54 years, I think it is, and inside you have got big trees and outside you've got bare ground. And that's only because of elephants. Keeping elephants out and keeping fire out. How can I follow your work or how can people get up to date on what's going on? You can become a member of the True Green Alliance and we will get a newsletter from us from us on a regular basis. And we'll, we've got lots of blogs on all these sorts of things. I've been talking about these Kruger elephants and these sorts of issues um, on our Facebook pages, for example, for the last five years. So it's been out there all the mm. time. But uh, that is one way. Um, and if you're not a pensioner, it'll cost you 500 bucks a year to be a member. And then you'll be able to follow up and you have contact with not only with, with me, but other people like me, because we've got a lot of people who are interested. We are now, we've now linked up um, or we have been one of the founding members of an organization called SUCCO, the Sustainable Use Coalition of South Africa. And that is all the people who are involved with, with wildlife utilization um, for the benefit of mankind. Um, we've got conservation really, its main purpose is to improve the quality of life for human beings by using resources like this. So all, all, all the game ranchers, for example, are, are members of, of, of Sucker. We've got all the hunting associations, the Chasa, the Confederation of Hunters Associations, these are largely built on hunters. Your 
FISA, your Professional Hunters Association of, of South Africa, they are in the SACO group. Um, and everybody who is involved with with these sorts of things, if if they're not members of SACO, we certainly support them and we, we encourage them to do the right things in terms of, of utilization. And it's a it's it's prove, proving to be a, a very powerful force. A lot of civil servants don't know the thing about anything about what we're talking about. Mm. And yet in Parliament they're asked to to vote on on certain issues that they know nothing about. And the other thing that worries me greatly is that um, your animal rights movements who make hundreds of millions of US dollars a year on their fundraising campaigns have been using that money to buy people's opinions in terms of, uh, of um, yeah. you know, w w one particular scientist that I know, for example, in the first ten years of his of his association with just one of these these groups, um, uh, he was paid nine point two million rands to. It was something to do with the with the elephants of Kruger as well. I I don't know that I should mention it at the moment, but uh, this is happening. This is happening, and uh, I don't know how to stop it. Out of interest, what caliber do you use to to shoot an elephant? If you're shooting bulls, um, you can use any any heavy caliber above a 375 magnum is, is legal. 375 magnum and above is legal. Those are all all heavy calibers, throwing big bullets. I used a uh, 458 magnum for most of my life on on elephants, and I was involved in that for I don't know. That is big. That is big. When we were doing the um, the population reduction in the Ghana Rajor, um, we were using the the military R1 rifle. You know it? Yeah. The military R1, 7.62 millimeter, self-loading. One magazine, the magazine, each magazine carried 20 rounds of ammunition, and um, we went in, but we were shooting at close range. It's like it's like standing in my sitting room with elephants surrounding me. And, and you're shooting an elephant one shot, one shot, one shot into the brain, and they all dropped stone dead. And we were taking out um, between 30 and 50 elephants at one time inside a period of 60 seconds with two, with three people firing. That's all. It sounds dangerous, though. I mean, don't they attack? They don't get a chance. What they've got, they've got 60 seconds, 60 seconds to determine whether they're going to flatten me on the ground or whether they're going to fall dead with a bullet. And if you know what you're doing, they fall dead with a bullet before they've even made up their minds. And remember, there's three good quality hunters doing, know what they're doing, know where they're putting their bullets. It's easy. And, um, not one of those elephants were wounded and none of them got away. So it was all totally humane. Lots of people will show their arms up in horror, but I think it is time that we started talking the truth to these people, telling them exactly what is going on. They will say, oh, but you can't do this, you can't do it. We can do it because we have done it. But up until now, we don't talk about these things. Mm. And again, uh, just before we, we, we come in for a landing, again, I just want to say you need to go to Kruger yourself to actually see. Yes. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the best. Yes.
particularly if they've seen that if they've seen that uh, documentary yeah when they go there with with new eyes mm. sure okay wow uh <laughs> I was, I was looking for some sort of uplifting <laughs> way to end this. <laughs> um, it's a very dark conversation, Ron, but okay. Um, let me let me say this. Ron Thompson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.